0: your boy and welcome to episode 59 of the podcast this is m which you can subscribe to on apple Podcasts and spotify everywhere you find good podcasts you'll find this one take a minute rate and review us give us five stars type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like it send them your favorite episode happy halloween everyone I guess I should have wished you that before we uh, said goodbye the last time, but it honestly wasn't on my mind. Uh, Halloween is not a holiday that I normally look forward to. I I would actually say I'm probably more of a Scrooge about Halloween than I am about any other holiday. And I have probably told myself every year for the last 12 years that I was going to do something for Halloween next year. You know, Halloween approaches... I sort of waffle about maybe finding a costume and dressing up and maybe taking up, you know, you have friends who offer you uh, or invite you to come to their Halloween party, and I never go. And if I'm being honest, I usually see people who are dressed up sort of skipping around, and I, I usually think they're a bunch of dum-dums. And, but the holiday comes and goes, I see people who love it, and I always tell myself, you know what, if you just bite the bullet... um if you just bite the bullet and just go with it and surrender to the holiday, you'll probably have a good time. And so I tell myself, you know what? Next year, don't be such a party pooper. Just go ahead and, uh, you know, accept whatever invitation comes your way. Just find a costume and uh, and do it. And I, I never do. I think it has some... I don't know. There's something about dressing up in a costume that just feels super lame to me. And this may sound like a stretch, but I think it has something to do... Like... You know how there are, you ever see these middle-aged dudes who just can't seem to bring themselves to wear a suit no matter what event they're at? It's like they go to a wedding or they go to a funeral even and they just wear like pants and a sweater and I think it has something to do, like when you're a kid, this will make sense, when you're a kid, it's like you hate dressing up. You know, I remember going to my first wedding when I was a kid and having to wear a suit for the first time and it was the most uncomfortable thing I'd ever worn. And you can't wait to take the jacket off. And when you get to the reception, finally, you beg your mom to let you take off your clip-on tie so you can unbutton the top button. Uh, You can roll the sleeves up and just kind of run around, maybe untuck your shirt especially. And and I don't know, I feel like that carries over into adulthood for some people. And I think when you get older, you either reach a point where you understand that dressing up is actually kind of fun and actually you look pretty good. But the part that bumps you as a kid, especially, I feel like even teenagers have this, where it's like, teenagers kind of, even though they, they look back and they realize they look awful at this point in their life, but to their teenage eyes, when they look in the mirror, they have their look dialed in. And it's like, if you alter that in any way, it's almost an insecurity thing. You know, I don't know, I don't know what the protest is in the moment necessarily, but it's like nobody under a certain age looks forward to dressing up. Um, I would say even for prom, I mean, I, you know, maybe this is too, uh, gender normative for folks, but it's like, I, I think a lot of girls t- typically like to dress up for prom and they like having the photos taken, but I think most guys could kind of take it or leave it. Um, uh, and maybe that's changing a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know, especially for me growing up, I hated dressing up and I don't know when that switched exactly, but it's like, I see this kind of middle age, sometimes even older type of man who's kind of in that arrested development stage where it's like, they'll show up and they just grab the nicest thing in their closet. And it's usually sweater and pants. And you also get the sense like for them, this qualifies, you know, it's probably because maybe they are just kind of schlubby in general. So this is dressing up based on what they normally wear, but they always kind of look like substitute English teachers. You know, they're a little disheveled and they, it's not quite a Christmas sweater. It's not quite an old man sweater but it's some braided, woven, woolen type sweater that they have, and, uh, it's like maroon, usually, and they wear pants that are sort of, they're not khaki, they're always going to be, like, uh, green, that sort of green pant color, that deep green, you know what I'm talking about, or that, or that sort of mid-brown color, uh, and the problem with that look, too, is they're going to wear sneakers, you know, uh, So yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. It's a weird look, but there's something about that. It's you know, people don't like to be taken out of their comfort zone, and so I don't have that necessarily. Like I I I don't have the sort of uh, you know, if I show up to a wedding or something, I'll wear a suit. But I think where it still holds over for me is Halloween. You know, when I see people who do dress up for Halloween and kind of give themselves over to it, I I just feel like a fucking Scrooge. And uh, every year I've told myself I'm I'm going to be different. I'm going to change. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to join in this communal celebration where we all dress like whatever the fuck and, uh, and just have fun. Uh, and if nothing else, at least we will have the photos and it's an, and it's another memory. But I would say for the last 12 years, I haven't done shit about it. And, um, but this year it was different. Uh, my girlfriend has uh, a girlfriend of hers, uh, who's in a new relationship. They've been together for probably about a year. But they recently moved in with each other, and so they invited me and my girlfriend over for Halloween, and um, they have kind of a cool terrace-slash-outdoor area that has like a bunch of grills and outdoor seating for people uh, in their apartment building, but nobody ever seems to use it, I guess. So they invited us over and said, we know it's shelter-in-place, we know nobody's really supposed to be hanging out with each other, but if you guys wanted to come over, we could hang out on this terrace, get some fresh air, cook out with each other, and and and... Kind of do something for Halloween, just an excuse to enjoy each other's company. And um, I really like this couple. Um, we, act- I think we actually went hiking with them right when the shelter in place first started. Um, so I was game to hang out with them, but but I gotta say too, since shelter in place, I I really hadn't considered that I really haven't seen anyone. And I I could say that it's because of COVID. You know, I could say that I'm trying to reduce my contact with other people. But I think. COVID just, and the shelter in place really just kind of plays to my strengths, which is I, I kind of like being alone. And so even when my girlfriend has floated, you know, maybe hanging out with this couple in the past, it's not because I don't like them. I like them a lot, but i have just kind of, I don't know. I've kind of waffled on it. And I've, uh, I don't know. When my girlfriend has hung out with this friend of hers, I've just sort of used it as an excuse to go home. I was like, well, you guys have fun. I'll just go home. I have some other things to work on. Um, uh, but for this, it I don't know. It seemed like something to do. And so it was nice. We all dressed up. My girlfriend, uh, I had to use her costume. I basically showed up the night before and she's like, What are you going to wear? And I was like, Actually, I have nothing. And so uh, I went as Cookie Monsters. She had like this blue wig. And you're never going to be able to picture it, but she had these like sunglasses that are sort of built. I don't know. The build out of the glasses is basically Cookie Monsters' face. So you wear them in their sunglasses, but whatever is built out of them his cookie monster's face. And, um, I wore like some, excuse me, I wore some blue furry gloves and, um, uh, yeah, basically, uh, took charge of the grill. Uh, we cooked some corn and chicken and asparagus and, uh, yeah, it was good times. Uh, nice view of the Bay area, great sunset. And, uh, yeah, it sort of surprised me to think, man, this is the first time I'm hung out with another couple. So, really the first time I've hung out with anyone since Shelter in Place. And actually, coincidentally, we spent a lot of uh, the last episode talking about Slaughterhouse-Five, but since then, I've gone back and I read read the short story collection of Stephen King uh, Night Shift, which I had read when I was a kid. I was probably like, I don't know that I read the whole thing when I was a kid, but I think probably around the time I was like 11 or 12. I do remember being in my first bedroom in Tucson, Arizona, reading uh, the story The Boogeyman from Night Shift. Um, And so it was weird. I I hadn't really planned it this way, but it was kind of, I don't know, it was kind of fortuitous that I was reading a short story collection, uh, uh, you know, of horror stories around the same time as Halloween. And I got to say, I know Stephen King gets a lot of shit or, I I don't know, it's, it's kind of a weird place right now with Stephen King, right? Like he's having something of a renaissance in terms of you know, popular culture. I mean, he's had a huge renaissance, I don't even know, in the last like five or six years. It's like, it got remade, and uh, they made a sequel to The Shining, and it's like every story, it's like The Outsider got turned into an HBO miniseries, and the list just goes on and on. I can't even think of all of them. And it's like, I don't know what, uh, yeah, I don't know where this renaissance for Stephen King is coming from, because I don't think his new novels you know, do as well as his older novels. And it probably has less to do with Stephen King than it does with just people who are readers in general. Um, but I mean, I'm kind of, in, I don't know, I feel like I've been a broken record about this book in Brett Easton Ellis and Chuck Palahniuk conversation. But uh, I think Night Shift came up in, in that conversation also. So I thought, you know, that'd be a good excuse to go back and read Stephen King. Uh, I've mentioned it on the podcast probably a few times, if I'm being honest, but You know, for me, Stephen King was the first author that I read that really got me into reading. Um, I was hanging out with a friend of mine. I had, like, one friend when I was in, at least, you know, in elementary school, the first part of elementary school. Uh, Her name was Sarah. And I remember hanging out with Sarah's mom. And for some reason, we went to Barnes & Noble when it first opened. Uh, They were, like, a brand-new chain at the time. And so we're at Barnes & Noble. I almost feel like it was, like, one of the first major bookstores I'd ever been to. But, uh, her mom was kind of being nice having taken us out and, and I don't know, I think Sarah was buying something and for, I don't know, for some reason her mom felt bad that I wasn't getting anything or, I I don't know, kids are weird, right? Like you always like, I don't know, you're worried that kids will be jealous or some shit and I, and I never really had that growing up. Um, there was even another time I was with the same mom and daughter and we were at Toys R Us buying something and we were right at the checkout counter and the mom for some reason looked at me and said, oh, uh, is there anything that you want? And I felt really embarrassed because absolutely not, but at the same time i wasn 't quite sure how I was supposed to respond you know as a kid, I, I felt kind of beholden to the mom, and so there was a part of me that, as she was offering to buy me something it 's like i wasn 't sure if declining her would would be being rude. you know like when you go to someone 's house and they offer you food you 're supposed to eat it you 're not supposed to say no thanks, and so, as a kid, this was the first time I had been in that type of situation. And I remember just kind of looking around frantically. And even back then, toy stores or wherever the hell you were at had the sort of impulse buys right at the counter. And I remember there was this sort of miniature Godzilla toy. And I just sort of like looked around frantically and just saw this bin of these Godzilla toys. And I said, "Uh, I don't know this. (laughs) And I think then she was in a position where she was like, I think she knew I didn't really want it but also couldn't really tell me, eh, let's go ahead and skip that, right? Like, I was like, uh, yeah, this, I'll, I'll, I'll take this Godzilla toy. And so, she rings it up, and I, I even remember taking it home, and when her mom dropped me off, like, just kind of walking in the door with it, and my mom was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, Sarah's mom got it for me. And my mom looked at Sarah's mom and said, oh, you didn't have to do that. You know, like, uh, that was, like like, incredibly generous of you. But yeah, I don't know, it was an embarrassing situation. But I I don't know. I remember being at Barnes and Noble uh with this mother and daughter and I think the mother did the same thing. She was like, "Oh, do you want to get something?" And I was like, "I wouldn't even know where to begin, honestly." And uh I think I asked her mom for a recommendation, and she says, "Oh, I don't know. I really like reading Stephen King." And I was like, "Oh, well, I don't know who that is." And so she I don't know, I guess we march over to the horror section, and she's kind of looking at the different titles. And uh, I don't know, I see the spine for Misery, and I go, oh, well, what's this one about? Or maybe I even read the back, I don't know. But if you don't know Misery, it's about an author, uh, kind of a Stephen King type, almost. Um, But a very successful author, he wrote this series uh, about a a protagonist named Misery. And uh, he's, like, uh, driving out in the snow, he crashes his car, he gets picked up by a woman uh, and taken to her home to recuperate, she's a nurse, and uh, turns out to be his biggest fan. And turns out this woman was not happy how the story ended, and basically holds this author hostage, you know, hobbles him, basically handicaps him so he can't escape, and forces him to rewrite uh, the novel the way she wanted it to end. So, pretty brutal story for a second grader to read, but who the fuck knows, man. That's the book that I buy. I take it home, and I was so fucking enamored with this book. I remember I, I probably read it in like two days, and it was like ever since I read that book, I was a voracious reader. Um, now, if you listen to the podcast, that's not a new story. That's something that that's something that you've heard at least once before. But um, I think the reason it came up is because I was really intre- I, I mean, I, I was really into Stephen King, and uh, I, you know, I mentioned this uh, Bredy Senales and Chuck Polnick interview that I heard. Recently, and they both said that they were huge Stephen King fans growing up. So I don't know what it is. I, I think I just sort of fell out of favor with Stephen King. Probably, about, I remember the last books that he came out with that I sort of anticipated and may or may not have read. I don't remember, but were uh, at one time he came out with two books at the same time. One was called The Regulators and Desperation, uh, and they were like I don't know joint novels. They were somehow related. I don't fucking know. Um but that was like the last books that he came out that were that were sort of on my radar. Um and uh yeah, I don't know. I think I just sort of outgrew him. Maybe I sort of picked up that he wasn't like really considered a serious author. But there was something about Stephen King, especially to my young men, that really uh really got me. Um and so I was kind of interested to go back and read some of these stories from Night Shift and just kind of see how they felt. I wasn't really sure if I was gonna read them and think they were crap. Um but it turns out they're actually really fucking good. You know, I would say Stephen King, you know, in terms of like prose, like his stories really move and they're actually really entertaining. And they really tell a gripping story. Like there were there, I mean there were plenty of times as I'm reading the stories where I was actually like you know, you feel the suspense of them. And strangely, it's actually the moments like these stories are at their best with Stephen King when they're sort of building tension right? When the, when the plot is just sort of carrying the novel, they really, really move, and they actually really hold you, and, they're, and they're, they're actually really great stories. The times where they feel the least convincing, actually, is when the horror actually shows its face. You know, when it sort of alludes to the supernatural, or the tension starts to build, or as things go bump in the night, like that's when it's really entertaining when the humans are you know are sort of front and center and the human human drama is playing out that's when the stories are great and then they once the once the monster actually reveals itself then they kind of get a little i don't know i don't I don't know what to say they get a little almost comical you know i don't know if it's just I don't know if it's just uh, intrinsic to horror, but it's like the minute the vampire shows its face or shows its teeth, or the minute the, uh, I don't know, the monster with the green scales and eyes sort of shows its head, it's just not as scary anymore. You know? And I don't know what that is, but I would say all of the stories are good. Some of them are really, really good. There's probably about two or three that are really exceptional. But even at its best, they f- I feel like they just fall just a bit short once the horror shows its face. And actually, the stories that work the best for me are the ones where there is no monster. There's actually a story called Night Surf, which is sort of eerily... I don't know the word. pression Or what's the, what's the fucking word? Fortuitous? I don't fucking know. But it's about uh, a plague from China. It's about a pandemic from China that has already killed off most of the people in the United States, and it's just about a group of teenagers who maybe think that they're the only ones still left alive. but how they spend their time, um, kind of in a Coney Island type setting, it sounds like, but, um, but, uh, yeah, that was interesting, and, uh, yeah, there's a story called Quitters Incorporated, which is about a guy who quit smoking, and so he goes to this, uh, this firm that's, you know, they said they have a 98% uh, success rate, um... But their method is a secret. And once you learn how they uh, get people to quit smoking, uh, <laughs> you'll realize why they're so successful. But, you know, it's the it's the stories where there's not so much a supernatural element as, is it, as much as it is human horror. And uh, maybe I'm just connecting this dot right now, but I wonder if that's why Misery uh, really gripped me as well. Like, maybe that was the right story to start off with. Because even as I go back and I reflect on, you know, the novels of Stephen King that I read when I was younger that didn't really... Do it for me was probably more of the supernatural ones. Like, I remember even really liking Cujo as a kid. Um, uh, most of Pet Cemetery, especially the beginning before the monsters really show their face, I remember being terrified by the novel Pet Cemetery. Um, but novels like It and Tommyknockers never really did it for me. And I, 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 I remember reading on writing probably when I was like 19 or 20 or something and really enjoying that. And some of what he says about his life, you know, the drug use and all that sort of stuff, I think it shone a light on some of the novels that I had read. Like, I think he said he doesn't even remember writing Tommyknockers. He was doing so much cocaine. But, um, um, (laughs) I don't know. I'm sort of laughing because I, I, one thing about Stephen King, which I had sort of forgotten, um, do y'all remember Laserdisc or do you even know what Laserdisc is? If you're young, you definitely fucking don't. But if you're a little bit older, or my age, you you will remember Laserdisc, even if you never saw one or had one, you'll remember the title. And Laserdisc was basically this movie format uh, between VHS and DVD, and it was on these CD-looking type things that were larger than a record. You know, a vinyl record is like 12 inches. I think Laserdisc were even bigger than that, they were probably like 16 inches. And there were these huge CDs. You had to have a special Laserdisc player for them, obviously. And I remember at my house, we only had like a few of them. I can, I, can even, I can remember all the titles now. We had Higher Learning. We had Drop Zone with Wesley Snipes. Actually, is Wesley Snipes in Higher Learning also? Maybe it's Omar Epps, I think. It's a younger actor. It's probably not Wesley Snipes. I think it's a younger black actor named Omar Epps. Um, uh, what else do we have? We had Higher Learning... Drop Zone, Jesus Christ Superstar, on fucking laserdisc. We had Needful Things, which is a Stephen King adaptation, and we also had uh, Langoliers or The Langoliers, which was a uh, like a TV miniseries based on Stephen King, with the same actor who played Balky from what the fuck is the show? Not Odd Couple, Uh, Neighbor. I don't fucking. It's one of. It's like the odd. It's just like odd. It's. Uh, it's like the Odd Couple. It's just some bullshit. What is it called? I don't know. It doesn't matter. But um yeah, at least two of the laser discs that we have were these sort of uh multi-disc Stephen King adaptations. Needful Things. I think Ed Harris is in that one. Um And The Langoliers. But uh yeah, so I don't know. Stephen King played a big part of my childhood growing up, my creative development, I guess. So it was kind of nice. It, it sort of felt like a return to childhood, kind of reading these stories again. But it was also... Um, it was also nice that they still kind of held up. Uh, some of it was a little bit silly. Um, there's one story too. I, you know, there's a story in there called the Lawnmower Man, which I remember when I was a kid, um, there was a movie called the Lawnmower Man too, with, um, not Rob Lowe. Who's the actor? Um, I think Pierce Brosnan is in the movie. Um, and I don't even remember the plot. It's something to do with technology and like neuroscience. It's almost like a, I think it was almost like a Michael Crichton-esque um, kind of movie or whatever. It's kind of sci-fi uh, uh, techno thriller, very kind of 90s, you know. Uh, virtual reality some bullshit. And so I I remember having this collection of short stories Night Shift and just assuming that the movie was based uh, on the Stephen King short story. But when you read the Stephen King short story, the lawnmower man, you realize it's very different, uh, but also bizarre and strange. Um, so anyway, I don't know if talking about that's helpful. Um, since most of you will probably not have read Night Shift, but if you're looking for something scary to read around Halloween, um, you could probably start there or with Misery. Um, I think I'm going to go back and read Misery myself here pretty soon. Um. yeah, saying Michael Crichton was kind of weird too. My brother swears that Eaters of the Dead is like a really good book. He really wanted me to read that. Um, I think he read it within the last 10 years or so and, and fucking loved it. I never went back to it though. I will say Sphere was a huge novel for me growing up. Um, and I think for most people who read it, I remember even when I was working at this bar years ago, um, I had one coworker of mine who was a very literary guy. Uh, he and I could just sort of rap, a, rap about books for hours and Uh, He gushed about Sphere also when he was a kid. He just fucking loved that uh, book. That was actually one of the first books that I read that I really anticipated the movie. Like when they announced the movie for Sphere, I remember thinking, holy shit. You know, before then, I would just see movies and hear that they were books and sometimes read the book afterwards, um, sometimes pretending that I had read the book first. But I think Sphere was the first movie that came out that was actually based on a book that I had read and and really loved. Um, So I don't know who knows, maybe I'll go, I'll have this whole, like, return to childhood thing and read, um, I don't know, all these books from my childhood that were pretty cool. I don't think I ever read Jurassic Park. I did try to read Congo after the movie came out. The movie sucked and the book sucked, so, kind of a double loss there. Yeah. Yeah, other than that, I mean, geez, you know, it's kind of, I don't know if I'm impressed or if I'm disappointed or I don't know what to call it, but, um, you know, I got home today, you know, my UC applications are are sort of coming up here in about a month, and for anyone who's applied to college, you know, one thing you have to do is you have to write essays, and especially for the UC system, you have to write what they call PIQs or personal insight questions, and I think they give you like nine or ten options, and you have to fill out five of them, But ideally, I'd like to finish those with some time to spare so I can get some feedback on them. But I told myself today on Sunday that I was going to go, I was going to spend most of today working on those. And I haven't touched them. I've done two things today. I came home and I I fucking made the mistake of looking at work stuff. I don't know if you guys do the same thing, but I told myself, I'm not going to look at anything related to work on Saturday or Sunday. And of course, the first thing I do when I get home is just peek into my work email and there's like 10 small things that I think, oh, I'll just do these right now, which and, and ends up taking me two hours. And then I I return to this video game I've been playing called The Return of the Obra Din. which is a video game I've been hearing about for a while now. I think it's been out for a couple years. But it sort of is the type of video game that I like, which is it's very different. You know, like my idea of fun is not sitting down and playing a shooter video game. I don't even, I would say I don't even like video games categorically, but there is a certain lane of video game that I'll certainly look at, and every once in a while I love them. I've talked about Jonathan Blow. I love his games, uh, especially The Witness. Um, uh, what else comes to mind? I, I don't know. I, I don't really want to go on a tirade about video games except to say I've been playing this game called Return of the Obra Dinn, and it's unlike any game I've ever played, and it, and it is a puzzle game. It probably qualifies as a puzzle game where... You basically play this, like, insurance agent. Uh, it's set in, like, eighteen, like the late 1800s or some shit like that. But there's this ship called the Obra Den that made some voyage with, like, 60 people on board. And everybody died. And the ship comes back. And you have this sort of special death watch that, like, takes you back into time. And you see all these memories of the ship. And basically, you, you're given, like, a... Um, what do they call it? A manifest with... Uh, all the names and rankings of the people on board, and you basically have to watch vignettes of what happened in the past, and they're they're shown out of sequence, and uh, they happen at different parts of the ships in different places in time, and basically you have to piece the puzzle together of not only what happened on the ship, but you have to identify every person on board and say how they died. And it sounds, I don't know, it doesn't even, <laughs> even as I'm talking about it, it doesn't sound like a fun game to play. But once you start getting into it and you get in this habit of like learning how you keep track of people or how you like little tips and tricks to identify people, because you're never really given anything decisive. You know, very rarely are you shown someone's face and either in that moment or in another moment that you're able to buy, you know, a little bit of thinking to sort of place to the name. There's very few times where you're given someone's name directly. You really have to do it based on things like accent, based on narrative, you know, you're given a couple things like uh, you're given a map of the ship, you're given a a glossary of sailing terms, but you basically, through people's dialogue and accent and placement and a bunch of other things, maybe little biographical details that you sort of piece together, you're basically able to identify people. And the first time I I played through this game, you can play through it very quickly, Um, you can basically see all the memories without identifying anybody. And so there was this period where you know, when you when you see all the memories that the ship has to hold, you're sort of invited to leave the ship if you want to. And I thought that there was going to be this period where I can kind of sit down and kind of piece the thing together. But basically, the game ends pretty shortly after that. And it's like, well, you didn't do a very good job, is basically the summary of the game. And I was like, oh, shit. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to I'm going to try this thing again. I'm going to spend more time with it. And so it's obviously much more of a crawl, you know. But it's like if you just give it like an hour of your time and you take it very slowly... It's a pretty, pretty fucking cool game. So anyway, I played that for like two hours today. So if you're looking for a fun game to distract yourself with, check it out. It's called The Return of the Obra Dinn. And so when I finish it, who knows, maybe I'll have more things to say about it. But outside of that, I made some lunch, and then I I started reading Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. And I'm only like six chapters into it. I'm probably, you know, probably less than a quarter of the way through it. <sighs> And I guess I feel kind of silly because I had to sort of backpedal on, on, on some, some things I had said about Chuck Palahniuk. You know, on a much earlier episode, I I talked about him and I said, yeah, most people I knew growing up who didn't read like Chuck Palahniuk. And when I read Fight Club, it sucked. And so I guess I, I always thought he was a hack. And I was really surprised going back and hearing this conversation with Chuck Palahniuk and Brady Ellis, I was surprised uh, by how much I was getting out of it, you know, by how much I really vied with what they were saying. And I was especially surprised... Because having read each of these authors' most famous novels, I was not really into them. You know, I read Fight Club and didn't like it. I loved the movie, but didn't like the novel. I had read American Psycho, liked the movie, but didn't really like the novel. But as I'm reading Fight Club again, it's fucking really good. And I still, you know, again, I'm only six chapters into it. So far, I still stand by my takeaway, which is I I think the movie makes a much clearer and, and maybe even better, if you want to put it that way, a better version of the story because, um, it's very kinetic is the word I'm thinking of, but it's very just sort of, uh, I don't know. It, it's, it's not as lucid as the movie say, but it also is a weird thing. And I, I think I felt this way when I actually read No Country for Old Men after seeing the movie. And I don't know if it's disappointment or, or what you call it, but it's kind of weird when you see an adaptation of a novel, and you realize how much of the dialogue in the film is lifted directly from the novel. And I guess if you were making an adaptation of a novel, that's exactly what you should do. I don't know why that surprises me, but I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Does Does Chuck Palahniuk get like screenwriter credit on the film? I'd have to look into that. Or does Cormac McCarthy get screenwriter credit of some kind uh, for No Country for Old Men? Because if Ninety percent of the dialogue in the movie is lifted directly from the novel. Shouldn't they get that? Or who knows? Maybe the screenplay itself is—you get full credit just due to the structure or some shit like that. Maybe based on a novel by is the best credit you can get. But I will say I'm I'm already feeling like I might have to backpedal on my on my assessment that the novel was not very good because I think um, I think it might actually <laughs> I think it might actually be pretty good. So <sighs> Yeah. Well, here we are, halfway through the podcast and out of things to say. I got I actually I kinda knew this was gonna happen. Um this is I don't think we addressed it on the last episode, but uh, yeah. I honestly wasn't looking forward to doing the podcast today. And it's one of the the first times I have really felt that way. And even as I'm sitting here talking to you, as we've been talking for the last 30 minutes, I don't know. It feels kind of forced to me. And I don't know what's going on, but the last two weeks have been really difficult for me with the podcast. You know, I, I normally sit down, hit record, and just talk for an hour. But last week, you know... Uh, I ended up recording on Sunday, hours before the podcast had to go live. And today, it's Sunday, you know, I'm looking at the clock, it's uh, it's 6.05pm Pacific Time, the podcast will be live in six hours. And the reason I'm I'm recording so down to the wire is because normally I'll try to sit down and record on Fridays and knock it out, but for some reason, I've tried to record both Fridays, and I will start the podcast like five times. And every time I get like five or ten minutes in, it's like I hit a wall. I run out of things to say. I fall into a silence. And it's like I just I just run out of steam. And, you know, I tried that a few times. You know, five times is probably hyperbolic. But, you know, I'll, I'll do it two or three times. And I think I've just told myself, you know what? I really just don't want to fucking do this right now. So why don't I wait? I'll come back to it Sunday. And uh, even last Sunday, you know, we got through it. I listened back to some of the episode, and I was like, yeah, well, that sounds like a podcast. Um, and even now, you know, I'm starting this podcast, this is the third time I've started it, we're definitely too far in to fucking stop now, but, um, it's just weird to feel myself, you know, this is episode 59, you know, it's not like episode, uh, I don't know, I thought this would, would have disappeared after the first 12 episodes, um, and I even, I checked in with my brother about it, too. I was saying I was feeling kind of insecure about the podcast. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why. Um, just because I, I don't know. I don't don't want to, I don't want to give ammunition to my detractors. But um, even as I'm talking about this now, I mean, I, I solicited my brother for his honest feedback. You know, I was saying I'm at a point now where uh, you're not seeing this, but I'm I'm even filming this episode. I've actually filmed like the last six or seven Um, and I'm not saying that those will ever be public. I think I'm just sort of practicing for myself, you know, in the same way that I recorded, you know, I recorded myself speaking for an hour, you know, I I probably have about a dozen or two dozen, uh, episodes that just never were, they just never existed. I was just sort of, you know, trying to practice speaking for an hour. Um, I feel like I'm kind of doing that with the video also. Um, and as I'm wanting to invest, I'm, I'm wanting to invest more time in kind of, uh, I don't know, resources into doing this thing. I guess I feel like I don't, I, I don't want to feel like I'm wasting my time, you know? And I know we have a core group of listeners who, who follow the podcast and I see new people sort of going through it also. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I'm in a vulnerable spot. And so I solicit my, I, I asked my brother for some honest feedback and, uh, who knows? Maybe it's cause he's my brother, but he seems to like it. I have some other people in my life who are close who, who seem to like it. Um, my brother did say that the one thing that he doesn't enjoy is when he, he, the the sort of meta commentary on the podcast. So I'm sorry that we're, uh, we're going to, we're going to be talking about this for hopefully no more than five to 10 minutes, but, um, I don't know. It's where I'm at, you know, and, um, I don't know, even talking about it, I feel this sort of pang of insecurity, you know, um, you know, I've talked about on some level, we're just, we're, we're executing a concept here, right? It's a stream of consciousness podcast. Uh, it has to work for my life. Um, and you know, every once in a while, it's just going to be what it is. You're going to sit down to record and it's not going to be a home run, but it's going to, it's going to be an episode and it's just going to have to be what it is. And sometimes that's going to be a kind of boring meta commentary on the podcast or how I'm feeling about it. And, um, I don't know. I if you if you if you're a fan of this podcast, I think you just have to be okay with it, and I think I just have to be okay with it. Um. So, but that's it. You know, I think the part that's strange for me is why is something that is normally so easy and has been so easy, why is it hard all of a sudden? You know, we've talked about this in the past. Like, you'll be on stage. And you'll be singing just fine. And all of a sudden you become aware of yourself and it's all, it's like things grind to a halt all of a sudden. And you just got to like take a deep breath and just fucking push through. And I don't know. I will say, there's a couple things I've been doing recently that I've kind of dropped. Like, I'm looking over in the corner right here, and I'm looking at my uh, little MIDI keyboard. Uh, I was talking about that for a long time. I was spending a lot of time learning synthesis. And I don't know if this is a microcosm for my life in general. Maybe, ooh, maybe this has to do with the podcast. It's that sort of Freudian thing where everything's sort of linked together. But I was doing this uh, software called Centorial that sort of teaches you about synthesis, and it basically has its own synthesizer, and you basically learn by hearing so you hear sounds and you learn how to dial them in um, which when you think about it this is really how you demonstrate any skill um, I think in math they say if you if you or maybe in science in general if you can't demonstrate something with math you don't really understand it and I think when it comes to music there's that kind of thing also like if you can hear something and play it, then you really understand it um. And I think that that was kind of their approach with Centorial to teach people synthesizers, which is synthesizers are capable of generating all sorts of sounds. And if you really understand the different components and the different elements, you can hear something and and kind of recreate it pretty much just by going knowing which part of your synthesizer to sort of start fucking with. And so I've given a lot of my time over to the Centorial thing. And I've done probably 75% of it. I don't know. I, I, I don't remember how many lessons there are, but let's say there's... 30, I've probably done 25 of them. And it's maybe even more, maybe I've done 28 and there's 36, or maybe I've done 35 and there's 42 or something like that. But it's like, I've gotten 70 pi- 75% of the way through and I haven't looked at it in like two months. And it's like, I'm scared that if I go back to it, I'm going to be so far behind that I'll have to like go back and like relearn things. I feel that all the time in my life. It's something that's come up in therapy, which is like, When I'm in school, every time I start another semester, it's like, I don't know how I'm going to do it again. And I'm not bragging when I say it. Well, maybe I am, but uh, look, your boy's getting straight A's in school and he continues to get straight A's in school. Um, and maybe part of that is because he's going to junior college where it's not the hardest thing in the world, but, uh, I'm also older. I know how to spend my time. I kind of know, I have, I have some sense of why I'm going to school, which I definitely didn't have when I was a kid. Um, But I'm just a better student, and I know how to use my time wisely. And I'm just not dealing with things that younger kids in my class are dealing with. Like, they have their whole social life to navigate. I'm going to work, and I'm going to school full-time. But even that hasn't felt like too big a challenge. Um, Maybe part of it is shelter-in-place, especially, I'm able to do things at home. Like I was sort of joking. I, I was actually giving this interview and it was one of the many times in my life where someone was saying, Oh, that's kind of a stand-up bit. Like, have you ever thought about being a stand-up? And uh it's I mean it's endlessly flattering for me because I love I love stand-up. But I was just sort of joking with this guy as we were, you know, sort of breaking in the conversation, and he it was kind of strange. Nobody really asks you these types of questions, but he just sort of started the interview with, Hey, yeah, how are you dealing with everything that's going on? How are you dealing with shelter in place? And I said, well, for me, it plays in my strengths. You know, I wake up in the morning. I I like being home. I'm sort of a domesticated person. So it's perfectly fine for me to not see people stay home, work from home. And it's like, you know, I'm going to school. I go to work. um, uh, And it's like every part of my life now is just a new tab in my browser. It's like, oh, time for school. I open a tab. Oh, it's time for work. I open a new tab. Or hell, when I'm free, it's time to watch Netflix. Watch Netflix. I just open another tab. And the thing that I thought that I that I couldn't really say because it wouldn't be appropriate. I'm just like, "Yeah, when well, you're just sex life, you just open a new tab and go to Pornhub or something like that." Um, so I don't know, there's a bit in there somewhere. If you're a stand-up comedian, you can fucking run with it. But um but uh, where am I going with that? Yeah, I don't know. I'm doing well in school, I think is what I'm saying. And yet every semester, like right at the 75% point, it's like things get a little bit harder. You know, and there's a microcosm of that with with a lot of assignments too. Like I have this anthropology paper I have to write now. It's on rites of passage, and I actually interviewed my brother on his uh, defending his doctoral dissertation. And actually, it was such a good conversation with my brother. He's so fucking smart. Um, and it's one of the we, we, you know I've talked about it at some point. Maybe after episode 100, I'd like to start maybe having guests on this podcast. But I knew when I sat down with that conversation with my brother that I was I was dealing with some of these insecurities about the the podcast or or having this new uh, confidence crisis for whatever reason for whatever reason. And as I'm talking to my brother, it's sort of funny because I remember you know I was always the performer in the family growing up. I did theater and all that sort of stuff. I was always on stage. And I'm not trying to give him a hard time, but I remember when we were younger, my brother was like in fifth grade or something, and we had to do this like. I don't know, it was something in the gymnasium. Like, did your school have, like, a multi-purpose room? And it was some kind of fucking assembly where people did skits or something. And my brother did some skit with his class where he played the teacher. And the dialogue was down. Like, they had written it together, I think, as a class, and he had said all the right things to let you know that it was his teacher. Um, But he just, I don't know, it wasn't wasn't great. And I I know he's going to hear that, and I don't mean to hurt his feelings, but I guess I just never... Pegged my brother as like a performer. And I don't know if it's something that you get, I don't know if it's something that you get just with maturity. Maybe it has to do with his experience with research, maybe giving presentations. But just talking with him, he was able to just sort of run with anything you 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 said to him and just sort of go on this tell this great story about his experience, and he was so articulate. And as he was speaking, I didn't say this to him, but I was like, I can't wait till I get to the point where I feel like I've executed this fucking stream of consciousness concept where I have to do X number of episodes by myself, you know, whatever, whatever that curriculum, whatever that curriculum I set for myself is, whenever I finish that and I get to fucking just, just kind of have fun with things and do something new, um, Uh, just because I want to chase this thought. I mean, it's almost like when I was writing and performing as The Plastic Arts and I was on record three of just songs with voice and guitar because I told myself, look, if I can just do it with voice and guitar, then I can do it with a a larger arrangement. Like, I want to work out this songwriting muscle so that I feel, right or wrong, that these songs stand on their own with just voice and guitar. And then when I do that, I can fucking go off and do... Um, full band bullshit or whatever the fuck it is. But I feel like I've taken that kind of approach with the podcast. So whenever that happens, and I, and I think it'll be the 100 episode mark, but I would love to have my brother on the podcast because I think you're going to, I, I want to talk to him about, I, I want to talk with him on the podcast again about his experience with his doctoral dissertation because I, I think he was really able to articulate so clearly this, this sort of disconnect between the public perception of a PhD and what it actually is and um and just i don 't know I, I I think it actually ties in with you know we 're all into like true crime now, and we 're all into like these long form podcast um, and actually, the true crime thing probably doesn 't have anything to do with it, but one thing I think we all tend to like right now in terms of entertainment is these long form podcast interviews, and the ones that we enjoy the most are the ones we 're kind of the most surprised by you know where we 're introduced to a way of life or a way of thinking or a skill that we just never even knew existed. And there's just something fundamentally entertaining about hearing someone talk passionately or knowledgeably about something, no matter what it is. And so I got such a kick out of hearing my brother talk about his doctoral dissertation uh, and just what the process is like, that I thought, I can't wait to have him on the podcast and do it. Um, You know, and of course there's other people I'd like to have on too. But, um... But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if that's really the point I was driving at. Um, That feels like a summary enough point. But I guess I'm also thinking that I'm just really impressed by my brother. Um, Very smart guy. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, very bright guy. When I finally get him on here, I think you're going to enjoy hearing from him. I wonder if you'll have trouble telling us apart. Our voices are so similar. <clears throat> I'm sort of laughing because I'm thinking, well, he's not always right, at least not in my opinion. He texted me the other night and uh, I guess I'm thinking of this because we were talking about stand-up comedy. But uh, you know, we, we always just sort of uh, you know, uh check in with each other about good content to watch. Uh and he sort of texted me the other night and he says, Hey, we just watched this Netflix comedy special uh from this comedian Sam J. You should check it out. And uh I was like, fuck yeah, I'm up for that. And I checked it out. I watched it with my girlfriend and you know, there were a few chuckles in it, but overall not great. Um, and it's not that I was sort of de- I was debriefing this with my girlfriend because my brother also recommended another special to me at some point. Um which I also thought was not great. And it's you know, there's a difference between seeing something where you go, "Oh, this person sucks." Like this person is like I don't know, it's sort of confusing to me why this person's successful. And I didn't feel that in either case, but I, I just want to float this theory, and uh, maybe it's going to sound half-baked from somebody who's, one, not a stand-up comedian, and maybe doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, but this this is just my intuition, which is I see a lot of stand-up comedy specials now, and it's the, it's the case with Sam Jay, and it's with this other person, too, who I can't remember. I think part of it is the scale of the special feels very small. Uh, meaning they've sort of taken a small room and they've kind of dressed it up a little bit. Um, And I think it's just because this person, I don't, I don't think prior to this special, I don't think this person's a big draw. You know, I think part of it has to do with Netflix being proactive about finding comedians, especially comedians who fit a certain demographic, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And, you know, they find people who are probably the best in that lane. You know, Sam J is, is incredible, but if, if I think I would have been much more fulfilled if I saw Sam Jay do 20 minutes, you know, because one hour just doesn't, it just feels like a bit of a stretch. And I would say throughout that whole special, I probably had about three or four genuine laughs out of it. The rest I watched with a completely straight face. And my girlfriend was the same way. And I was just checking in with her and I was like, what, 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 what is that? Why, why can you watch somebody who's a professional fucking comedian and you can just watch their hour long special, which is supposed to be you know, ideally it's their canonical, uh, codified um, installment or contribution to their creative output that's supposed to be the benchmark of their success as a as a comedian. Now, I know comedy is subjective. Um, I know what's funny for one person is not funny for everybody else, so maybe that's part of it. But I'm just sort of watching this person's thing with just kind of a straight face. Like, I'm not hearing a lot of... I don't know there's, it's, it's, it's like funny talk. It's a funny quality of conversation, but I'm not hearing a lot of great jokes. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know what that is, except I I think there's this thing now as Netflix is sort of snatching up comedy, maybe, you know, maybe people are getting the specialists who are just not quite ready, you know? And I'm not saying that I'm the arbiter of that. I'm only speaking as like an audience member who's just not laughing. But I feel like maybe people are getting specials who just don't have great hours. You know, they probably have a killer 20 minutes. um, But the hour just feels a little long. And it usually, it feels a little uneven too. But anyway, I don't fucking know, man. The person we had to check in with is my buddy Aaron Marsh. He was like, we mentioned Aaron, I think we mentioned him a few times on the podcast, but... We mentioned him on the first episode of the podcast for fucking sure. And by first episode, I mean for real first episode. The curious case of Adam, Duritz, his, Adam Duritz's hair. Um, uh, he's a Santa comedian down in Los Angeles. I got to talk to him. He would be a good person to have on this podcast. One, you would get to hear about uh, me playing music in Tucson, Arizona when he, um, he and I met playing music together. I'd like to hear about his time in Los Angeles but the last time I saw him, I was down playing at the Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles, which is like a, you know, a kind of a famous singer-songwriter venue. And it was fucking mortifying because I had just been in town uh, touring with Matt Nathanson. We played at the El Rio. Uh, oh, no, sorry. No, the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles, which is, you know, at least a thousand people. And I think that was actually one of the, I think it may have been the only show on the tour that was not sold out, but there was still like 900 people there. So, you're playing like a legit venue in Los Angeles, and you're playing to a pretty packed place, and it was just kind of a cool, (laughs) you know, if a friend from your past was going to see you play, like this is the show that you want them to go to, Um, and God bless him, he was willing to come out and say hello, and I saw him before the show, and we sort of hung out afterwards, but but the next time I was in town, I was playing at Hotel Cafe, and I was really banking on this tour to be like the follow-up where like, you know, I really saw like the, the impact of like, yeah, when you tour with a major artist and you play for their, their audience, this is, the, this is the follow-up you can expect. Like this is when you really start to feel things pick up, right? Like all you needed was an opportunity to get uh, introduced to enough people and then you'd have like, uh, you'd at least have a, your, your foot in the door of like a local audience. Came back to LA, played at Hotel Cafe, and there were fucking four people who came to see me. It was one couple who saw me, maybe it was like three or four people, I can't remember, but they had seen me play with Matt Nathanson in Santa Ana at the OC Observatory, which I think was the biggest show on the fucking tour. I think it's like 1,300 people. Um, but four people came from that show, and then from the. Uh, and, and then my buddy Aaron and his uh, then girlfriend came to see me at Hotel Cafe, where fucking nobody was. Nobody fucking came to see me. And it was one of those things where you're both grateful that people did come out to see you. Like, you just want to go, oh, thank you so much for coming. Otherwise, I would have played for fucking nobody. Um, But it was also a little heartbreaking, too, because, uh, I don't know, you feel like a fucking zero when your friends come out to see you and you're fucking playing for them. Um, It's one of those things where you feel like, uh, you know, not that they ever say it, but you can sort of feel them thinking like, damn, man, shit's not going really well. How long are you going to keep this up for? Well, it turns out not very long. I think that may have been... Actually, I think I played in San Francisco after that. But otherwise, that was like one of the last shows I played since then. But um, but anyway, we were out in... I think it's like in... Is it Hollywood area? I think we are. Sunset Boulevard. I don't know where the fuck it is. But if you Google map Hotel Cafe, we were just kind of around there. And actually, we went to this cafe, which I swear to God, I had gone to before uh, with this dude, Jake Coco, who I was down in LA doing a song with a couple years before that. I swear we went to the exact same fucking cafe, strangely. Um, but we go there, and I don't know why, but I'm ripping on Adam Duritz from The Counting Crows. And I've mentioned this before. Adam, Adam Counting Crows is one of my favorite bands of all time. I think Adam Duritz is one of the greatest songwriters ever, one of the most underrated lyricists ever, and one of the greatest creative influences I, I've ever had. I mean, it's few people have impacted me more than Adam Duritz. And yet... There is something about Adam Duritz's hair which has always fucking bothered me. I mean, a lot of actors do this, especially a lot of musicians, but anybody in entertainment does this. When guys get past a certain age where their face is much older than their hair, it's fucking weird. And maybe I'm just hyper attuned to it because I'm a a, a bald dude and maybe there's some jealousy mixed mixed in here. I don't know what it is. But it's like, if anyone's doing doing it right because they're blessed, it's a dude like Matt Nathanson who's kind of letting himself go gray, but the fucking dude has a full head of hair. And you're like, God damn it, why are some people blessed and I'm fucking cursed? But there are people who go the opposite fucking direction, which is you think, I don't know if they've had hair plugs, I don't know what the fucking thing is, but Adam Duritz is probably like almost 50, if he's not 50 already, and yet for the last 30 years, he's had this fucking head, this full head of of black or brown dreadlocks. And there was this rumor going around forever that I had heard that his fucking hair was fake. Like he wore fucking wigs or had dreadlock extensions or whatever. And so I don't know why, but I'm giving the guy shit. I'm sitting at this cafe in LA with my buddy Aaron talking about it. And of course it's so fucking LA. He goes, oh, I actually know his girlfriend. And I was like, oh shit. And he goes, yeah. Do you want me to text her right now? (laughs) I was like, okay. And so he does, and I don't know, she gets back to him like 30 minutes later saying, oh no, that's his real hair. Oh no, I remember, because fucking around that time Adam Duritz has like shaved his fucking head, or I had started seeing him on Instagram where he was wearing a hat, you know, and I was like, something's going on with that fucking hat, like how is this guy who's had a full head of fucking dreadlocks for the last 30 years, all of a sudden he's wearing a hat and I don't fucking see shit poking out from under that? I was like, he probably shaved his head or he got his fucking hair plugs taken out or whatever the fuck it was. But now it's like you see Adam Duritz and he looks his age. And I think he happens to look pretty fucking good. But he did. He like cut his hair short or whatever. But it looks a thousand times better. You know, there's just something weird when it's like you're, you got a stranglehold on your youth or something. And there's just something incongruous about your face or the crow's feet around your eyes and your fucking hair. You see this with teeth too. People do this with like, people get the false teeth put in or they bleach their teeth or whatever the fuck it is. But it's like, you know, your face is 45 and your teeth are 12. <laughs> you have a full grill of, of crystal white teeth, but your skin is yellow. You look fucking weird. Don't do that. You know, as you get older too, the whites of your eyes change color? Like you see older people, their eyes just kind of get a little bit yellow. It's the same thing with your teeth. If your teeth are fucking uh, eggshell white... But your eyes are yellow. Something's wrong. So anyway, when we get uh, <clears throat> when we get Aaron Marsh on the podcast, we'll be able to explain what's going on with these stand-up comedians and their Netflix specials. I'm sure there is good ones. If you have any, let me know. I guess the other one that stands out that people loves was was Nanette, and I was actually reflecting on this as I was watching the Sarah, uh, not Sarah, the Sam Jay comedy special, um, because Nanette was a comedy special that I watched that really stuck with me. I mean, I don't know if it's good comedy. I think it's good, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's good drama. I mean, there's, there's, there's really good dramatic moments. I don't know if there's a lot of great jokes in it, and actually, I think she came out with another fucking special, but here's the thing. I don't know that comedian's name. I know the name of the special because people talked about it. But what can we deduce by a special that's gotten a lot of talk, but I can't summon the person's name? I don't know what that means exactly, but I'll have to think about it. I I, I think it means I wasn't that taken with the comedian, or I wasn't really compelled to look up their other material, you know? Maybe I'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> <clears throat> Anyway, I'm, uh, looking at us winding down the clock here and I'm thinking if I start saying goodbye slowly, I can probably tip us over the hour mark. So, <sighs> is there anything else to get to? I don't know. I, I honestly, I do this every week. I, I write down things to say and, uh, I'm looking at a, a Google doc full of podcast ideas, uh, things I thought would be good to get to and I, I just never fucking do it. So, who knows, maybe this week I'll, I'll try to jot down more ideas and, and, uh, I don't know. Try to avoid these lulls or to try to get myself out of this confidence crisis or I don't know what's happening. But um, but I don't know. You know what would make me feel good? If you took a minute to rate and review the show, give us five stars. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And keep your eyes peeled. This is going to be a video podcast pretty soon. So um, I will be pointing you to the YouTube channel. I think I'm going to be putting it actually on my music YouTube channel. You know, that's the one that has a lot of subscribers. Normally in the past, I've never cared about just sort of starting over. Uh, you know, new room sweeps clean, that kind of things. But I'm also, I'm thinking, why fight it? You know, you already have a few thousand subscribers on YouTube. Go ahead and put it up there and just see if you can't kickstart uh, the video podcast with a couple views, right? Um, so yes, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, take a minute, rate and review the show. Give us five stars. Uh, help me get out of this little confidence crisis I'm in. Uh, And if you want to help us grow the audience, you know, think of one person in your life you think would like the podcast and send them your favorite episode. Uh, Until then, thanks for sticking with us each week. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening and ciao for now.